Lord, we come to you today. And our desire is to worship you. And so we do that now, Lord. And we tell you as your church, your body and your bride. We tell you, Lord Jesus, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy are you, Lord. You are the worthy one of heaven. You are the only one of worth, Lord. And we confess to you even this day, God, that there is no worth in us apart from you. There is no good in us apart from you, Lord. God, we did not deserve your saving work. We deserved only your wrath. And yet you came for us, Lord Jesus. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And you died for our sins. And you rose on the third day. And you opened our eyes to your glorious gospel. And we are saved. Even this day, Lord, we are saved. We are your people. Your bride that is called by your name. And we praise you, Lord, for your great salvation. It's a wonderful thing to be reconciled to you, God, and to know you. And to know that all of your wrath has been put away. And that you have given us a full and complete redemption, Lord. And you have destined us for glory. Lord, we love you. And we gather together in Jesus' name today. And we ask you to meet with us. We ask you to address us, Lord, in the midst of our days. Speak to us, Lord. In the midst of this life that you have given us to live for your glory, come draw near and come teach us, God, your word. Come teach us your word, Lord. Let it come with power today. We believe it. Remind us of it, Lord, that unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. We believe that, God. I believe that even in this moment, Lord, I intend to labor for you. God, but apart from your spirit, it falls to the ground in vain. And so we ask you to come. And draw near. God, make your word effective in our life, we pray. And come meet with us by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll be in Genesis 20 today. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to read this text. Okay? We're going to read this text. Now... Sometimes we might be used to thinking backwards, but this is actually the most important thing that you're going to hear in the next hour is the word of God. And this is the only thing that you're going to hear in the next hour that is without error, that is inspired from the mouth of God. And we get this tremendous grace from God that we get to hear hot breath from the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us his word today. And so let's read it together. If you have your Bibles, I want everybody's eyes on Genesis 20. I'm going to read this text. This is the word of God to his church today. He says from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you, what did you see that you did these things? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And God caused me to wander from my father's house. And I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep. And oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church today. So I want us to press into this story. And we're going to look at a few things about Abraham. We're going to look at a few things about Satan in this story. We're going to look at a few things about God in this story. And so as we press in, I want to remind us of where we just came from. Genesis chapter 19. Is a catastrophe in the book of Genesis. Some terrifying realities happen in Genesis 19. Two, God judges the city of Sodom. 
And one of the last things we read about the city of Sodom is Abraham watches the smoke rise to the heavens as God sends a judgment on that city of fire and he consumes this wicked, wicked city. And then the very next thing that we see after that is this wicked incest plot with Lot and his daughters. And so coming out of this dark, dark place in God's word, Genesis chapter 20, Abraham decides that it's time to leave town. He's probably right. It's time to change location. God judges Sodom. His own nephew is engaged in an incest plot. He says, I'm out of here. And again, we see Abraham wandering through the promised land. So I want you to keep that in mind and then back up and let's grab a little bit bigger piece of the context in the book of Genesis. Because there's a bigger story going on behind the scenes than what we can see in Genesis 20. And the biggest story that's being unfolded in the book of Genesis is the promise of God. That God makes promises and then he fulfills promises. And something very specific that God has announced um, in this portion of the book of Genesis is that promise of God now has a specific date. So beginning in Genesis chapter 18, this prophecy clock starts and God says about this time next year, you're going to have this promised son. And he prophesies that this son will come from Abram through Sarah, his wife, in one year's time. And then that clock starts. And then we see Genesis 19 happen. So I want you to think about what happens in Genesis 19. Enough time happens after the promise of God to evaluate Sodom. For Abraham to intercede for Sodom. For God to judge Sodom. Enough time happens for this incest plot with Lot and his daughters. And then enough time happens for Abraham to make this journey to the far southwest corner of the promised land. And so what we have is tension building. Okay, this is part of almost all narrative and all plot development that there's something called plot tension. Okay, and if you're reading the book of Genesis closely at at this point, the only thing that we're waiting on is a birth announcement. Okay, that's what we're waiting on. The fulfillment of the promise and the faithfulness of God. In regards to this little baby boy that's to be born in one year's time. And so that's the plot tension. But instead of a demonstration of the faithfulness of God and the promise of God. We have a demonstration of the unfaithfulness of God's people. It's a surprising story to show up at this place in the book of Genesis. So we're going to start this morning by zoning in. On Abraham's sin. Abraham's sin. And one of the things that we want to do. Is we want to hear this. For personal edification. And I don't know if you caught this. But when Shane was praying for us. During our corporate prayer earlier. He asked the Lord. To help us to hear God's word. With sincerity. And that we would hear it with seriousness. And that we wouldn't hear it with indifference. And so we want to hear the word of God proclaimed today. And we want it to be an effect to us, to edify us. 
And so as we give attention to Abraham's sin, we want to be calling on God, the Holy Spirit and asking him to search me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in my heart. We don't want to just be experts in Abraham's sin. We want to see the things in our own heart that God would have us to see. So scripture calls this attitude of hearing God's word with reverence. The way you heard that said at Grace Community Church many times is leaned in to hear the word of God and not kicked back um, leisurely listening to God's word. And so we need this reminder that when we're talking about human sin, the appropriate response for every sinful human being is leaned in and listening. That there would even be an opportunity or a scenario that there are things in your life that are displeasing to Jesus Christ right now ought to cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up and all your attention given. Full attention to, to removing these offenses of Jesus Christ, towards Jesus Christ. And the Bible calls that attitude the fear of the Lord. And may it fall all over this church. The fear of God. That we would be a people when we hear God's word and God's commandments and warnings and examples. We're leaned in listening because we fear our God. And we don't want anything in our life that displeases our God. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 13 says this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Is hatred of evil. God wants to take you a step further than knowing about personal sin. He wants to impart this disposition in your life where you hate it. Why? Because you fear the Lord your God. And this is how we want to approach this text today. So let's talk about Abraham's sin. Abraham's sin in Genesis 20 is that he concealed his marriage of Sarah. Now he did it in a half-truth way that if you are only thinking about exactly what he said, did he say anything that was technically wrong? But that's not his error. His error is that he spoke in such a way to deceive. He concealed the fact that Sarah was, in fact, his wife. So I want you to put yourself in his scenario today that he is camping in the far southwest corner of the promised land. His surroundings are unfamiliar. The inhabitants around him are unfamiliar. And he tells us in verse 11, he tells us that he was scared that these inhabitants that these inhabitants were going to kill him and take his wife. And so he deceives. He speaks in a deceitful way. He twists reality. He presents it in such a way to deceive Abimelech. And in verse 13, he tells us that this is basically a premeditated plan that was conceived by Abraham, but Sarah was in on it. That when they first began to wander, when they first began to leave um, at the call of God in Genesis chapter 12, that they devised this plan. And this was going to be their safety net in this uncertain land that when people ask us questions, we're going to say this 
And this was to be their safety mechanism to preserve their life in these uncertain scenarios. Now, if you've read the book of Genesis before, you know that this is not the first time that this sin has surfaced in Abraham's life. In fact, this is a verbatim repetition of the sin that happens when Abraham goes down into Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. And he again, he conceals his marriage to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That situation, if you remember, um, it didn't go very well for Abraham. He was morally rebuked by one of the most unrighteous men on planet Earth. And we compared that to a servant of God being rebuked morally by Donald Trump. And it didn't go good for Abraham the last time that he sprung this safety mechanism. But what we see in Genesis chapter 20 is he has not learned his lesson. He hasn't learned from his sin. And so Genesis 20 is proof not only that a godly man can fall into sin. It's proof that a godly man can fall into sin twice. It's proof that the people of God can fall into sin with some sort of repetitive character to it. And that ought to come as a warning to us that none of us are insulated from that. In fact, the Bible actually addresses that mindset of I would never do that or I would never do that again. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's what we want to do. We want to examine our own life and we want to see ourselves rightly. And when we see ourselves rightly, we know that we are capable not only of failing God, but a failing God in ways that we already have failed him before. So this is a warning to us that we can fall into sin as believers, as godly men and women. And just to make that warning just a little bit sharper is this is a warning to us that there are particular sins in our life to which we are especially susceptible to. Okay, there are particular sins in our life that we are especially susceptible to. Now, the old Christian writers used to refer to this as besetting sins, your besetting sins, your bosom sins. Or the writer of Hebrews says it like this, that there are sins that cling so closely to us. And I wonder if you've ever seen this pattern play out in your life. Nobody is exempt from any temptation, but there are certain temptations that land on us with tremendous power. And I think you see that playing out in Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 20. And part of us growing as disciples. So we see this happening in his life. An old sin is resurfacing in his life. It's been sitting dormant for years, but it comes back. And part of us reading this story rightly and understanding it as disciples of Jesus is beginning to identify places of vulnerability in our own life. In other words, we need to know ourselves better than we already do. Okay? 
better than we already do. The world tells us all kinds of different ways that what human beings really need is self-confidence. Self-confidence. You need to be more confident in yourself. All kind of ways that worldview is pushed upon us. But the word of God tells us that what we really need is we really need to know ourselves better than we already do. We need self-knowledge. We need self-awareness. You need to know where you are weak. You need to know where you are vulnerable as a follower of Christ. Where you are particularly tempted. Especially tempted. So I want to say this. I don't want anybody here... Okay, to live in this perpetual state of morbid, paralyzing introspection. Okay, where all you do all day, every day is look at yourself and try to figure out yourself and look at your sins and look at your weaknesses and look at your vulnerabilities. There's a way to overcook that. And I do not want you to do that. I don't want you to do that because you weren't designed to do that. You are made to gaze toward Christ. You are made to live for God. You are made to look to Christ. You are made to gaze on Him and not yourself. So there's a sinful way that this can land on us in a man-centeredness. And we weren't made to be man-centered. We were made to be God-centered. So don't hear me in that way. That when we call to examine ourselves and to know ourselves and to know our besetting sins that we're talking about this navel gazing that stares at ourselves all day long. That's a powerless distortion. And this is not what you were created for. But I will say in the same breath, I don't want that for you. But brothers and sisters, I do want you. In the depths of my heart, I do want you to know how vulnerable you are. I want you to know how vulnerable you are. I want you awakened to the true state of things, to, to, to the real reality of things, that you're not as strong as you think you are, that you're vulnerable. You have vulnerabilities. And I want you to know that about yourself. And so may God, the Holy Spirit, give you that reminder as we see Abraham, the man of God, sinning against God, not learning his lesson, going back to the same old sin, sin resurfacing in his life, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would give you an internal, spiritual, deep reminder in your bones that you see your vulnerability. And not just on paper, but that you really feel it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the right view of yourself. Vulnerable, weak, especially in these areas of besetting sins, besetting sins. So I want us to identify these in our life, but that's not enough. Once we know what they are, we have to begin to examine the roots of those sins and those particular temptations in our life. And here's what I mean. We know what Abraham's sin was. Deception. But we also know why he did that. Fear. Fear is the root and deception was the fruit. Root sins, fruit sins. 
And if we want to wage a good war, if we want to if we want to kill sin, we have to learn how to aim at it at the very root. We can't go our whole life snapping off fruits, snapping off leaves. We have to dig up the roots. And there's something in the book of Genesis. There's several things that God had given Abraham. Had he meditated on them and had he considered them, they would have cut the root of that sin of fear. And I'll just give you two. Think of this. Think of this beautiful promise. Genesis 15, God shows up to Abraham and he says this in Genesis chapter 15, verse one. He says, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Did you get it? Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. You have no reason to be afraid, Abram. You are as safe as I am able to keep you safe. I am your shield. Think if that was the the promise that was banging around in his mind and his heart as he was wandering through this uncertain place. Would that have killed that root of fear that... That God is my shield. God is my protector. He's my defender in this uncertain land. But what about the promise that we already mentioned? In Genesis 18. God tells Abraham that about this time next year that he's going to have a son. This promised son. And it's not coming through Hagar. It's not coming through anybody else. It's coming through Sarah. So, so Abraham is destined to have a promised Son through Sarah. And what that means is that the promise of God is Sarah is going to be Abraham's wife. She's not going to be the wife of another man. In this year's time frame, there's no way that Sarah is not going to be Abraham's wife. And so think about that. Think of think about those promises and what God gave him access to and the encouragement that God held out for him in those promises. And what we see in Genesis chapter 20, that instead of leaning on those promises of God, that Abraham leans on this safety mechanism, this fleshly plan that was devised at the very beginning of his journey. He had no reason to fear because of what God had already spoken to him. Now, I want to mention one more thing. When we think about his error... And his sin. And we think about him not trusting in the word of God. And not believing God's word. I think it's really important. That we remember. As followers of Christ. That he failed God. Exactly where we almost always fail God. And he failed God. Not in the area of orthodoxy. He failed God in the area of orthopraxy. Listen closely to this. We do not think about this as much as we should. Okay? Abraham did not fail a doctrinal exam before God. He's got his doctrinal I's dotted and his T's crossed. What did he fail? He failed orthopraxy. He failed to apply the things that he said he believed about God to his normal everyday life. And that massive gap is still there in every one of our lives of what we say we believe versus how we live. 
And the challenge for us is to close that gap because how we live shows us what we really believe in those moments about God. And so the great importance for us and and the emphasis for us is to bring our life into conformity with the Word of God. Not just going through a doctrinal exam. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? How are you living? How are you living before God? This is where our faith is tested. This is where men and women are conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. Lining their life up with the Word of God. Alright, I want to transition. Okay? So we got the story of Abraham's sin. Abraham falling into an old sin. Not trusting the promises of God. What I want us to do is I want us to back up just one layer. And I want us to see that there's a larger narrative playing out in Genesis 20. And one of the things that's going to help you see that is in Genesis chapter 20. Listen closely. Almost certainly in Genesis chapter 20, Sarah is pregnant with Isaac. I want to take you through that for just a moment. Remember, the prophecy clock starts in Genesis chapter 18. One year's time. Sodom is destroyed. Lot's daughters spring their incest plot. Abraham travels to the southwest corner of the promised land. Visits three different places, two different places before he lands in Gerar. And so if you put that together, almost certainly... Those events lead us into a time frame that Genesis 20, we are in the middle of the gestation period and Isaac is in the womb of Sarah. The son of promise is in the womb in Genesis 20, almost certainly. And that's a game changer with understanding how we're reading this text. Because once that is identified, that there are other things at play than just a man and his wife. The very promise of God is on the line. God's purposes for the entire world are on the line in Genesis 20. So let's talk about that for a minute. Approaching this story behind the scenes. Okay. Be skeptical when anybody tells you a behind the scenes meaning on the passage of scripture. But I want want to show you this from the Bible itself. That there's some things happening in Genesis 20, even though they're not explicitly revealed in Genesis 20. And one of the things that's happening behind the scenes in the book of Genesis is Satan is making war on the offspring of the woman. And we see that over and over again in Genesis. And we see that over and over again in the entire Old Testament. So I want us to turn Back to Genesis chapter 3. And I want us to see where this war was declared. And where it started at the very beginning. Satan making war on the lineage of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is direct speech to the serpent. And this is the war that is declared that plays out throughout human history. Satan hates 
Christ. Why does Satan hate Christ? Genesis chapter 3.15 tells us why. Because Christ will destroy Satan. He will crush the head of the serpent. And so from this point forward, war is declared from the seed of the serpent on the seed of the woman. Why? Because somebody's coming that's about to destroy Satan. And so all of hell breaks loose to stop the one that's supposed to come from coming. And this war breaks out in the very next chapter of Scripture, Genesis chapter 4. Think about it. Satan thinks that Abel is the promised one and the deliverer. So what does he do? Devises a murder plot. Puts it in the heart of Cain, Abel's brother. Cain rises up and slaughters Abel. Satan thinks, promise of God, bleeding out on the ground. What does God do? God overrules that satanic plot in Genesis chapter 4. What does God do? He raises up another offspring in place of Abel. We know him as Seth. And that same thing keeps happening over and over again in Scripture. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 6, Satan devises this plot in Genesis chapter 6 that he's going to pollute the royal lineage. He's going to corrupt the lineage of Jesus Christ. And he's going to do it through unholy marriages. The sons of God going into the daughters of man. And this plot becomes so widespread that he almost takes every human being down in this plot in Genesis chapter 6. But what does God do? What does God do in the midst of Satan making war on this holy offspring, trying to kill the promised one, trying to see to it that the promised one does not come forward? What does God do? God overrules Satan. God overrules sin in Genesis chapter 6. And God preserves Noah and his family from falling into this corruption. And he preserves them, gives them salvation. That same thing begins to play out. All through the Bible, even in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, book of Exodus, the children of Israel, the people of God, the ones that are to bring forth the Christ of God, the head crusher, they're enslaved in Egypt. What does God do? Mighty hand, outstretched arm. They're coming out of Egypt. God shows his power over Pharaoh. He breaks the grip of Pharaoh on his people and they leave. They leave free. In fact, the people of Egypt are taking their possessions and they're throwing them and say, hey, take this, take this, get out of here. And they leave. They begin to exodus. And what does Satan do? He begins to devise this murder plot, puts it in the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh who said, y'all leave, take our stuff and leave, just get out of here and leave. This murder plot comes into his heart. And what does he do? He takes all the Egyptian military and he begins to pursue the people of God, the children of Israel in the desert. And the thought is this, I'm going to slaughter them. Behind the scenes, Satan is working his scheme. What's he trying to do? He's trying to kill the Christ. He is trying to, to kill the royal lineage. And what does God do in that story? The same thing that we see him do over and over and over again. The Egyptian military attempted to slaughter the people of God in the desert. But instead, God stopped Satan and overruled sin. 
And the people of God gather up on the, on the edges of the Red Sea and they begin to see the dead bodies of the Egyptian military float past and they begin to sing praises to God. Horse and rider He has cast into the sea. And again, we see human sin and Satan's purposes overruled by the power of God. It happens again in the book of Esther. We're introduced to this wicked man named Haman in the book of Esther. And, and Satan puts this murder plot in Haman's heart. And really it's a plot of genocide. And he has a man of tremendous political power. And he puts this political plan in place that all the Jews in the Persian Empire would be slaughtered on a certain day. Just days away from this genocide springing forth. God stops it. He steps in and he does the same thing again. He overrules Satan. He overrules sin. And he uses one of his servants, a, a, a young girl named Esther, who goes to the king on behalf of the Jewish people. And God delivers his people. God protects his offspring. God protects his seed. And Haman dies instead of the Jews. So you see this tension playing all the way up to the birth of Christ. All the way up to the birth of Christ. And the promised one comes. The long-awaited Savior. The one that history itself has been yearning for. The one that even creation now is groaning for His return. And He comes. And God begins to reveal to His prophets that you're going to see the Christ before you die in your lifetime. See that with Simeon. God begins to reveal to these wise men, the Christ is here. It's not that He's going to come. He's here now. His star is right there in the sky. And the long-awaited one is now the arrived one. God begins to reveal this to human beings. And one of the people that are made aware that the, the Savior is born, that the offspring has come, is this wicked man named Herod. And what happens is that same scenario playing out over and over and over that Satan devises this murder plot, puts it into the heart of this wicked man named Herod. And the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew tell us that Herod ordained, politically ordained, that every single child in the Bethlehem region, two years old and younger, was slaughtered and killed. What's happening in those stories? Satan is trying to kill the Christ. Why? Because the Christ is going to destroy Satan. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. And what does God do in that story? The same thing that he always does. He overrules Satan and he overrules sin. And we see him provide a way of escape and deliverance for Joseph, for Mary, for baby Jesus. And they begin to escape and they go into the land of Egypt. And God preserves his Christ, this holy one. The book of Revelation gives us a vivid description of this warfare, Satan and the seed of the woman. And I want you to turn there and let's read it together. Revelation chapter 12. This is a behind the scenes glimpse that you can read into many other places 
in the Bible. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 says this. And the dragon stood before before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne behind the scenes. One thing I will almost guarantee you is you have never seen a nativity scene like this. This is behind the scenes. The stuff we don't like to talk about and we don't show. you never seen that. You know, you see little baby Jesus, or, or let's even be, you know, more realistic, little baby white Jesus, okay? I'm saying that with all the sarcasm that I know how to say. Little baby white Jesus and his white parents. Never mind the fact that Jesus is a Middle Eastern Jew, okay? Never mind that. You got baby Jesus, you got Mary and Joseph, you got, you got, you got to have the animals, right? You got the cows and the lambs. And you got some shepherds gathered around. Maybe you have some wise men or some magi, the ones that come to bring the gifts to Christ. And maybe, maybe, maybe in some nativity scenes, maybe you have some angels off in the back, the ones that are praising the name uh, of Christ, announcing the promised one to come. But be, be serious about this. Have you ever seen a nativity scene with a dragon, the great serpent, with fangs uh, dripping from, from his mouth, ready to devour that little baby, ready to slaughter the Christ of God. This is the murderer behind the scenes. This is what he's always been about, murdering the seed of the woman. Why? Because Jesus is coming to destroy him. And we look back and we say, Jesus came to destroy him. Satan hates the Christ. And this is why we see the warfare raging in human history. Now, walk that same thing back into Genesis 20. That same warfare is playing out in this story. Okay, There's something going on behind the scenes. Satan is trying to do something to the lineage of Jesus Christ. So you have a promise is in the womb. And Satan wants to do something... To that baby in the womb. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. The promises of God are at stake. The purposes of God are at stake. In the story with Abimelech and Sarah. And listen closely. I want you to see what Satan is devising in Genesis chapter 20. If Sarah is not pregnant yet. If I'm wrong about that. Then Satan's design is to impregnate her with Abimelech. Do you see that? And the, and the goal there is what? If she's pregnant with Abimelech, she can't have the promised son from Abraham within the one year time gap. And God is shown to be a God who cannot bring about his purpose. So this is his desire. If she's not married, that's what he's trying to do. I mean, if she's not pregnant, that's what he's trying to do. But if she is already pregnant in Genesis 20, which I think she almost certainly is. Then Satan's design in this story is to cast a shadow on the lineage of Jesus Christ. Cast a shadow, cast doubt, 
that Jesus, in fact, did not descend from Abraham. So I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine how this, if if Sarah would have slept with Abimelech, imagine how that would have been perceived by the watching world. What do we know about Sarah? Well, we know for decades she's been married to Abraham. And they've shared a bed together hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And guess what? No baby. But Sarah goes into the tent of Abimelech one time, and guess what? Several months later, baby. The conclusion is really simple, okay? The world looking into this scenario, God says this is the promised son of Abraham. And because of this scenario with Abimelech, Satan wants the world to say that is the bastard child of Abimelech. That is not the son of Abraham. That is not the son of promise. So he wants to cast doubt on the identity of Isaac for what purpose? So that he can distort the lineage of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not the promised one. The seed of Abraham. This is what's at stake in this story. Satan is making war on the seed. He wants to distort the identity of Isaac. Which means that this sum of money that Abimelech gives to Abraham and Sarah. That is actually one of the most critical pieces of this story. In Genesis chapter 20. That sum of money is a massive amount of money. He gives Abraham and Sarah the equivalent of 20 bride prices. The equivalent of, of buying 20 brides. Or another, another figure to compare it to. This is equivalent to a 150 year salary of an average laborer in the ancient Near East. A massive amount of money. And we're told why he gave that money. And it's so everybody else knows nothing happened here. Nothing happened here with me and Sarah. He says, this is for your vindication. This is so that everybody knows that you are innocent and that nothing happened here. And that gift clears Sarah's name. And it secures the identity of this baby that's going to be born in the next chapter of Genesis. So when we see this behind the scenes background, we see that Genesis 20 is another example of Satan making war on the offspring of the woman and God showing himself to be mighty and powerful to accomplish his purposes. Man, I cannot wait to talk about this. We have three different views in in Genesis 20 that remind us of what God is like. Do you know how precious that is? The knowledge of God. A.W. Tozer says the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. So I want you to think about how precious this is. This is more precious than being given one, two, and three million dollars right now. That you're given true knowledge of God. This is what God is like. In Genesis 20, we get three views of His power and His authority. And when we put these three views together in Genesis chapter 20, we, are, we, we see that the God of Scripture is a God who has absolute sovereignty over human beings. 
absolute sovereignty over human beings. Let's walk through this first. First glimpse of God. He has sovereignty. The God of the Bible has sovereignty over the human body. The human body. Remember in verse 17 and verse 18, we were told that it was God who closed the womb and opened the womb of all the females in Abimelech's house. What does that tell us about him? It tells us it tells us that he has authority, authority over the human body. It tells us that human beings we're not as free as we think we are. We are not free to reproduce at will. God is sovereign over re human reproduction. He is the Lord of the womb. He is the Lord of life and death. He is the Lord of the human body. Wait, are you saying that human beings can't do what they want with their body? No, I'm, say I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that God is sovereign over whatever human beings do with their body. God is sovereign over the human body. He's the Lord that opens and closes the womb. And the second thing we see about the God of the Bible, Genesis 20, we see that the God of the Bible is sovereign over the human mind. Over the human mind. In verse 3, we have a record of God coming to Abimelech in a dream. In a dream. Now, I want you to try that when you get home. Try to come to someone in their consciousness. Try to appear in someone's mind. Try to invade someone's mental reality. And you'll find out real quick that this is his prerogative. So what picture do we see of God in Genesis 20? We see a God who is able to invade a human being's mind while they're sleeping. This is power. This is authority. The God of the Bible, think about this. He's able to get people's attention. He's able to get people's attention. Wait, wait, are you saying, are you saying this? Are you saying that, what, that people can't ignore God and ignore sin in their own life? No, I'm not saying that. We do that all the time. But I am saying this. You can't ignore God when he does this. God is able to come into your conscience and awaken it with a word like this. You are a dead man because of your sin. You think you can ignore that? The God who invades the dreams of man. He is able to get our attention. He's able to get anybody's attention anytime he wants anywhere in the world. Why? Because he has authority over the human mind. Human beings can't keep him out when he wants in. They can keep him out all day long until he wants in. And then they can't keep him out anymore. He has authority and power over the human mind. This is a massive God in Genesis 20. He is a mighty God. But we have one more picture of who God is. This is the most powerful of all. We see that the God of the Bible has power over human will. Power over human will. Verse 6. The God of the Bible describes his work with these two phrases. He looks at a pagan man and he says, I kept you from sinning. 
And then he turns and he says this again, just in case we're not getting this clear. He says, I did not let you touch her. Do you see that? Do you see that? Don't argue with it. It's there. God just stopped a man from sinning. The God of the Bible just exercised authority in those statements. He didn't let him do something. He stopped him from doing something. Most controversial statement of all, God has sovereignty over the human will. Those two phrases, I kept you from sinning. I did not let you touch her. Those two phrases have a capacity to mess with the human mind. And I have no doubts that some of you are even struggling through that right now. Wait a second. And the thing that I want to remind every one of us is this is hard for us to to grab a hold of. Why? Because we come into this world with backward thoughts of God. We come into this world with wrong thoughts about God and wrong thoughts about ourselves. Especially as it relates to this. Every single one of us are born with thoughts that God is smaller than he actually is with less authority than he actually has. Nobody makes the other error. error. Nobody ascribes to God more authority than he has. Human beings and sinners take authority away from God. We come into the world with bad thoughts of God. And then the other side of that is just as true that we're born into this world and we, ha- we, we see ourselves as more significant than we actually are with more autonomy than we actually have. And we are blind and dull to the fact that we are creatures made by and sustained by and ruled by the creator. And those worldviews and those thoughts, they hold sway in a human mind. Until we bump into Bible verses like Genesis 20 verse 6. Where God reveals to us actually the way I thought my whole life doesn't fit into this grid. The way I thought my whole life was that God has power. Yeah, no doubt. But there's certain things that God will never do. But then he does those very things in Genesis chapter 20 verse 6. Please listen to me. The God of the Bible stopped someone from sinning. He he exercised authority and sovereignty and he stopped sin dead in its tracks. A pagan king. So we got some really hard things to work through now. Because once we know this about God, do you understand the doors that that opened up? If God, listen, just, just start here. Just start right here. If God stops human sin in Genesis chapter 20, brothers and sisters, why didn't he stop it in Genesis chapter 3? Why didn't he stop? If he has the power and authority to do it, why didn't he shut it down at the very beginning? Why didn't he stop Eve from touching the fruit? Why didn't he stop Adam from from sinning against him? And even more than that, why didn't he stop the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worst sin that's ever been committed? Why did he allow that to happen? The answer to that is not because he doesn't have the authority to stop it. That is wrong. That is false knowledge of God. He does have the authority to stop it. 
He has the authority to stop it dead in its tracks. There's nothing that He cannot do. That's a false comfort. And it's false knowledge about God. And then the only answer becomes this. If He didn't stop it, the only answer is that He ordained it for His glory. That He ordained it for His glory. Why did God not stop sin in the Garden of Eden? Because the God of the Bible ordained to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. That's why all of history exists. It exists for Jesus to magnify the glory of the grace of God. God, the God of the Bible, never ordained that this earth would be inhabited by people that do not need Jesus. That is not His plan for all of history. So walk this in. Walk this in to, to your life. Do you even have a place for this? God's stopping sin dead in its tracks. God of the Bible, He's not reacting willy-nilly to all these different situations in your life or in someone else's life. Listen, He doesn't react. He ordains. The God of the Bible doesn't react. He ordains. He has a plan from the very beginning and He works all of history to accomplish his purpose. That's why he's stopping human sin in Genesis chapter 20. The God of the Bible is not reacting. He's ordaining all things for his glory. Does that include God exercising authority over the human will? Absolutely does, according to Genesis chapter 20. Now, this is a problem. Let's talk about it for just a minute. Let's reason together. Let's get some clarity. Let, let God the Holy Spirit give you a breakthrough in this moment. Almost every Christian says that God is powerful. Even that God is all powerful. But for some reason, some Christians feel the need to qualify that statement. With one thing over which God will never exercise dominion and authority. Take a guess what that area is. Human free will. Human free will. And the argument goes like this. Oh yeah, he has all power. He tells planets where to orbit and how fast to go. He has all power. He says to the waves of the ocean, stop right here and go no further. Oh yeah, no doubt. The God of the Bible has all power. All power. He rules over all the creatures in all the earth. But that God would never, He would never do something in the will of man. He would never violate man's free will. And this is the argument. And I made that argument myself many times at one time in my life. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. Is there really one domain in all of creation that the, that the God who rules all things doesn't say mine? And the answer to that is no. Is it biblically true that God never messes with the human will? No, bow. we have to bow to this story in Genesis chapter 20. God stops sin dead in its tracks. He takes the sexual desires 
of a pagan king and he bends them and makes them do what he desires him to do. This is his sovereignty over the human will. I want you to think about this. Those arguments that God never exercises that power in this domain. Do you understand that that evacuates the power and the authority of God from the very area that sinners need it most? Our wicked, rebellious wills, our wicked, rebellious hearts. If God is to exercise his power on anything, we need it there more than anything else. More than anything else. The God who is revealed to us in Scripture has absolute authority over human beings. Even over human wills. Even over human hearts. Listen to Proverbs verse 21, verse 1. Listen closely. Listen closely. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. So the question that you have to settle for yourself is that your God. Do you serve a God who is so sovereign and so mighty and so powerful that human wills, human hearts are literally in his hand and he is able to turn them wherever he will. You have to make this decision. Is this your God or is this not your God? Does your God have absolute unqualified sovereignty or have you embraced this little G God that's carved with the logic of man, with the ration of man, with the mind of man, that little G God that finite humans like me and you, because we can't understand him, we conform him to us instead of bowing down in mystery before this God. You have to make this decision. Is your God, the God of Genesis 20, the God of Proverbs 21, that has the heart of every human being in his hand, and he is able to turn it wherever he will. In Genesis 20, God exercises the same authority on the human will that God exercises on the human body. Neither one are any harder for him. It's not off limits for him. We are naked before God. We are wide open before this God. And we, we, we cannot overpower Him. That's the message. Do you believe that God is stronger than man? Do you believe that God is absolutely sovereign without any qualifiers? Now, when this topic is talked about, I've been around long enough to know that some people get confused and argumentative because they take things that were not actually said. And so listen to me. Don't take something that I'm not saying and apply it as though I were saying it. Please don't do that. Well, Dustin, can you tell us what you're saying so I'll know what you're not saying? What I'm saying is that the God of the Bible has sovereignty over the human will. Dustin, are you saying that we're all robots? 
Are you saying that that this is this determinative worldview and we don't have real choices? Not saying that at all. I'm just like you. I use my will every day. We use our will every day, our minds every day. We make choices every day. But what Genesis 20 tells us is that there's a sovereign God underneath all of it, working all things for his glory. There's no domain in our life that is outside of his kingship. Are you saying that we can't resist God? Are you saying that we can't sin against God? No. I'm with you in the same boat. We resist God on a daily basis. We, we sin against God on a daily basis. Yes, we can resist God until He does this. Until He does this. Until He uses His authority to conform us into His likeness for His glory. Yes, we can resist God until He acts with sovereign power. And when He acts in sovereign power... He stops the sexual desires of a pagan king in a millisecond. And that God has that same authority in our life. I want to ask you this question. Will you bow the knee to the authority of Scripture? Will you do that today? Will you bow the knee to the authority of the Word of God? All kind of different people argue about this stuff. Okay? When you leave this place, you got two decisions. You can argue about these things that you don't fully understand for the rest of your life. And you can be a yeah, but Christian. And you read verses like this and it's yeah, but this, yeah, but this, and yeah, but that can't be right because what about this? Yeah, but this, yeah, but this. And because you can't fit it in your finite logic and your finite ration, you just reject it. And when you do that, you don't realize that you're actually embracing false knowledge of what God is like. And instead of that, what I would invite you to do today is to bow to the word of God and to say in humility before God, I have no idea how all these things work out, but I bow before the God who has authority over the human body, the human mind, and yes, even the human will. He is that powerful and he is that mighty. So that's the question for you today. We have a king on a throne that rules all of heaven and earth. And the question posed to you is, will you bow to that king? Will you bow to him? Will you, will you give him the glory that is due his name? That He really is that mighty. He really is that powerful. He really does have that much authority. And I might not understand anything, but Lord, I worship you. You are the mighty God. Mighty God. I'll remind us as we close, we talk about the sovereignty of God. We don't apologize for that. No apologies for this. Listen, we boast in it. We boast in the absolute sovereignty of God with no qualifiers. Why? Because we like to be controversial. Is that why we boast in it? No, because we would be dead in our sins if he didn't use this power on our hearts. To open our eyes to the glory of Christ. There wouldn't be a Christian in this room if this God did not rule all things. This is glorious good news for us. That God has this much power. Ephesians chapter 1 calls this God the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Can you imagine 
more power than that. All things bends all history, works every human being to what end? According to the counsel of His will. So here we have it. God of Genesis 20. And we're reminded today of our vulnerability, our weakness. And in the same passage of Scripture, we are reminded of the power of our God to overrule human sin. And how that hits us as believers in Christ is God has ordained to use that power and authority for our good and for His glory. And what that means is that we can leave here today with encouragement that we can trust this God. He rules all things. He sits on His throne and He is for us and not against us in Christ. We can trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would visit us today, God, and make your word effective in our life, Lord. Your command is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, and we desire that, God. Lord, bless the teaching of your word. Let us gather together for profit, edification, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.